This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Today, Pamela Adlon, the co-creator, director, co-writer, and star of the FX comedy series Better Things. After five seasons, the series ended last month with an emotional and satisfying finale that left all its main characters in better circumstances. It also ended with a charming and eccentric farewell to viewers by having all cast members sing along to Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. In Better Things, Adlon played Sam Fox, who, like Adlon, is raising three girls as a single mother while trying to keep her acting career alive and also helping her aging mother who lives next door. Young actresses portray her character Sam's daughters on TV, but in real life, Pamela Adlon's daughters are now 19, 22, and 25 years old. Adlon herself has been acting since she was nine. She won an Emmy for her voice work as Bobby Hill, the son in the animated series King of the Hill, and appeared on seven seasons of the TV series Californication. She had a long collaborative relationship with Louis C.K. on his show Louis and his earlier show Lucky Louis. He and Adlon co-created her series Better Things, but she severed ties after he was accused of sexual misconduct by several women and he admitted it was true. Terry spoke with Pamela Adlon in 2019. Let's start with a clip from Better Things. Adlon's character Sam is being examined by her doctor when she starts telling him how stressed out she is by all the mom stuff she has to take care of. And he says, oh, like errands? Just let go of it. Everyone's got errands. Here is her response. No, no. Errands are like groceries and going to the post office. Mm -hmm. The real mom stuff. Soccer club signups and dance classes and tutors and tuition payments and parent-teacher conferences and schools and camps that I have to get them into and, and mean girl issues with my youngest at school and birth control with my oldest and cruelty from my middle daughter. And then there's my own mom who is driving me nuts and I'm pretty sure she has a mental something disorder and... My middle daughter is hitting puberty hard. Mm -hmm. And I am definitely going through menopause. Yet I still get my period and I have a beard and two mortgages. So yeah, Dr. Babu, it's like, it's a lot. And some mornings I just, oh my God, you know, lay in bed in my room and I stare at the ceiling and I just say, I just can't do it anymore. I just can't. I just can't. I just can't. I can't. I can't. (sighs) So, anyway, could you please just give me some Xanax or Ativans or Ambien's or something? Anything you think that'll help me get a full night's sleep because that's what I really need, Birju. I need a full night of sleep. (laughs) Pamela Adlon, welcome to Fresh Air, and congratulations on season three of Better Things. Thank you so much, Terry. So this season, everyone is going through a change. Like you said, you know, your oldest is going to college, the middle's in puberty, your youngest is being bullied at school, your you know, character's mother is, seems to be in the early stages of dementia, your character's going through menopause. Um, are these the personal issues you've been dealing with? Um, you know, I say this about my show that it's an exaggerated version of my life. So it's like 
Sam Fox is me in a cape. You know, certainly I'm in a, a multi-generational situation with all women in my life. My three daughters live at home. My mother lives next door. I'm what I think they call the sandwich generation. And so these issues are all happening uh, to me to a certain extent right now. Um, my own mother isn't going through dementia, but um, it's an interesting place to go. And I like people to have their own interpretation. And I think that's why people take this show so personally, because everybody's going through some version of, of these different things. I think women over the years have been very uncomfortable talking about getting older, maybe because I think a lot of women feel devalued with age and they're no longer considered sexual. So how did you feel about putting it out there, about crossing the threshold of 50? I, you know, it's, it's so, it, it's so exciting to me because I was, I didn't say my real age for years, you know, and, um, why not? It, it, I, because, because of the taboo of it. And, you know, when people find out, especially being an actor in the industry, um, it hurts, it hurts you for a woman um, you hit that 40, you know, it affects you because it is such an ageist, sexist industry, which I think is now um, shifting and changing. Um, it's still not 100% yet, but it's um, the irony is not lost on me that my father, at he hit 50, and basically, you know, he was a writer and producer and the jobs kind of started drying up for him because people wanted younger people. They, they want young blood and they valued youth over, you know, ability even. And so then I turn 50 and I have my own show and all of a sudden it's a whole new world for me professionally, you know, with all the different jobs that I do. And um, my show is a wonderful, I love my show. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I can tell these stories in an artful, cinematic way. It has great music, great actors. But also my show is the story about me and how I know that people are excited, you know, this lady's been kicking around in this business since I'm nine years old, and she hits it big at 50. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that bother you most and some of the things you find most liberating about having turned 50 a few years ago? You know, only two. <laughs> two years ago. Okay. <laughs> see it's still sensitive yes i I see (laughs) you know it's just i you kind of when you get comfortable with yourself it's it's a, a way of feeling confident and not having to hurry up and catch up and measure up to other people when you let go of that um the power is 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 incredible if if you look for things that are you know that if somebody's giving you a side eye 
uh, and you think they don't like you or or anything like that. You look in the mirror and you're like, oh, I guess this is my neck now. Okay. <laughs> well, let's keep going with that. Or are these jowls? Is this what you would call <laughs> jowls? It's so interesting. Oh, arm cellulite. That's That's fun. That's fun. You know, so it's like, you know, you have the physical things, but those things don't matter because your mind is richer, your experiences are richer, your your life is deeper, your connections with your friends are deeper. Um, my kids are older now, um, and our relationships are, are so much deeper than they used to be. You know, I used to try to get as far away from my kids as I could when they were younger. And now I want them around me all the time, and they want that too. So in the opening of the first episode, your character's trying on clothes and none of them fit because your character has put on a few pounds. So it seems like you've put on a few pounds. So I think in that opening scene, there's maybe a few extra pounds than there really were. <laughs> no, that's all me, Terry. Okay, all right. So <laughs> was that stress eating because this has been such a difficult time with you doing so much to get the show done? You know what? It's very interesting because I um, I wrapped season two of my show and I went into the editing room and, you know... Uh, just a few months went by, my body changed. My body changed. You know, I got thicker. And um, it's not, I don't feel um, bad about my body or anything, but it was shocking. And I remember being in my closet and, and trying on pants. I'm like, I just wore these three months ago. And things were just tighter. And it was a moment that I thought, oh boy, I'm going to have to do this in my show. <laughs> I'm going to, because it's, you know, you get into your 50s, your metabolism does funky things. And, um, you know, I, I just, I decided that, that it would be um, a very generous thing for me <laughs> to do it, <laughs> to kind of illustrate it. In my show, so everybody doesn't feel so alone because, you know, that happened to me and you sit there and you're by yourself and, you know, um, and for people, women in particular, when our bodies don't measure up to what our idea is of what we're supposed to look like with our clothes off in the mirror, uh, that's a shocking thing, you know. It's not our fault and it's not up to us to maintain some kind of a physical image for anybody but ourselves. I like the fact that when your character realizes her clothes no longer fit her because she's put on a few pounds, she doesn't go like, so I'm going on a diet now and I will lose that weight. My goal will be to fit back in these clothes. I mean, she goes about her life. Interesting. You know? Yeah. It, there's not, it, and also you as the star of the show and also the director of the show – you don't have somebody else telling you, Pamela Adlon, if you're going to continue playing this role, you have to lose some weight. No one's telling you that. It's your show. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? That's good. Right? Also, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't gain that much weight. But, no, I know. know. I know. But... I, I'm, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but listen, I remember being a teenage actor and being on a show. I'm not going to say the name. 
But I remember some girls on the show being pressured to lose weight. And it was extremely inappropriate. And it was extremely um, damaging, you know, to the psyche of a young girl. I mean, that was, you know, being in the 80s, in 80s television, that would be the ultimate era of toxic trying to control the way women are portrayed. So one of the things about your character is that she doesn't hold back when something bothers her, whether it's about her children or about um, somebody at her children's school or a stranger in a restaurant or, you know, she doesn't have much of a filter. (laughs) So she says what's on her mind. And, you know, there's a fine line between honesty and cruelty. And the girls, though, the girls are always so embarrassed by her, the daughters. Like, this isn't really a spoiler. There's a scene where the girls want to go go go-karting in, like, an amusement park. And uh, so you take them even though you don't really want to go. And the, the, the young man who's supposed to be giving the safety talk is talking like this. And, like, you, yes. no, one, no one can hear him. And you finally say, like, you're, you're supposed to be protecting us and telling us what to do. And we can't hear you. And your daughters are, like, so horribly embarrassed by the whole thing. Does that happen to you where, like, you're, you're trying to speak out? To speak yes. Up? For reasons of like, you have a you have a right to to have something or to expect something, and you're speaking out not just for yourself but for other people. But your daughters are just kind of withering with embarrassment. Exactly. Yes, this happens quite a bit, but it's like, I mean, come on. So you know, you're giving me the rules and, you know, this is a life or death situation and nobody can hear you and they're not admitting it because they're zoned out anyway. And, you know, it's like when Frankie says it's just like legal disclaimers that would never hold up in court. It doesn't matter. And I'm like, it does matter. You know, Sam's Sam's saying everything matters. But, you know, it's it's I, I think that this may be more of a a single parent kind of situation because there's no backup. She has no backup. There's nobody there saying, hey, you know, don't give your mother a hard time or something like that. It's just her. So she has no henchman, no zone defense, nothing. She's just got to be the one to make everybody squirm. Louis C.K. co-created the show with you and was a a co-writer with you on the first two seasons. And you parted ways with him after several women went public saying he'd masturbated in front of them, and then he admitted it was true. After those um, women went public and Louis C.K. confessed to it, you thought of stopping the show because he'd been such a key part of it. Um, Why did you think maybe you should stop, and why did you think that you were going to continue anyways? My personal feelings about what had happened, you know, me trying to wrap my mind around, you know, this cataclysmic event that happened and was directly affecting how do I keep making this show, you know? I mean, he was my consigliere. Um, when I was doing it, you know, I mean, I make the show in California. He lives in New York. We were able to talk out the stories and 
make the show together. And so we did that for two seasons. So he gets stripped of his executive producer credit. Uh, but, you know, we are co-creators of this show. And there's his his name. So I say, what do I do? I, I, uh, do I call it Schmetter Schmings? Do I call it Mo Better Things or something and, like, make a new show? I just could not wrap my mind around how I could continue this professionally. Um, and, you know, it was a whopper. I had to take a knee for some time. The fact that women were hurt by him and that he came out and he he talked about it. Um, uh, we were all scratching our heads. I, I remember you know, talking to my daughters about it. And I remember thinking about his daughters and, and it was just, you know, in general, it was a lot. So, um, I did not know how to kind of put my feet forward one in front of the other. So what did you change so that you could move forward? Well, I was given the go-ahead by the head of my network, who's the incredible John Langreff. But, you know, there was just a certain point that he called me and he told me some other weird, bad news about, you know, we weren't going to be uh, considered for any awards season things. And, and it was just we were being affected by this thing. Um, because Louis and, was affiliated with it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I just said to him at a certain point, I said, I, this doesn't really make sense anymore. I don't think that I, I can do this show anymore. I don't think that my heart's in it. I don't know how to keep moving forward. And he said, I'm not going to force you to do anything, but I want you to do your show. I want to see your show. I want you to keep doing your show. And he said, just take time and think about it. And it was so kind, you know, they gave me the time to sit and think and um, get my bearings and um, figure out how I could do it. And then, um, you, you know, I've, I've talked about this. My friend Phil Rosenthal, who created Everybody Loves Raymond, really helped me, kind of pointed me in a new direction that would help me resurrect my my spirit and my uh passion for um making my show again instead of um coming up with the stories with louis you you, you started a writer's room and hire, hired women uh, exclusively women no um it's interesting because um the submissions i was getting were only women and so um you know, I was getting them from my network. I, I was getting them from my friends. And I said, hey, you know, my writing partner for the last 10 years has been a man. Um, please don't send me only women. Um, so uh, I read people and I ended up hiring two women and two men. And, um, you know, and I mean, I'd never been in a writer's room, let alone run a writer's room. I still don't know if I did it the right way but I did it the only way I knew how to do it and and um and Phil was uh was huge help he was he, he helped coach me Pamela Adlon speaking to Terry Gross in 2019 
Her FX series Better Things recently concluded after five seasons. After a break, we'll continue their conversation. Also, I'll review the newest addition to the Star Trek universe of TV shows, and film critic Justin Chang reviews a new French film called Happening, which is set in the 1960s, but whose subject is amazingly relevant to what's happening today. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2019 interview with actor, writer, and director Pamela Adlon. Better Things, the FX series in which she starred, loosely based on her own life, raising three girls with her mother living next door, ended last month with an uncharacteristically but charmingly upbeat finale. Your uh, character sees images of her father sometimes who kind of gives her advice. Sometimes it's good advice. Sometimes it's really not. Um, and the, I saw a picture of your father, I can't remember if it was IMDb or someplace else, and he looks a lot like the actor playing the ghost of your father. Yes. Uh, I guess that was intentional. I made a my dad. Is that weird for you? Because he's, he's... Well, it was, it was crazy the first time. It was crazy. I mean, I had my friend Zoe Hay, who was the, um, you know, she was the... Merkin master on Masters of Sex. <laughs> she, she created the hair pieces for Adam Kolbersch, who plays my dad. And it was unbelievable when I did the pilot. I could not get over it. And, um, you know, I wear I wear a green sweater quite a bit in my show. And in, it's in the pilot. That was my dad's sweater. Um, and so it, it's just his spirit is all around because, you know, I'm doing what, you know, I watched him do. He was a writer and producer and, um, I looked up to him my whole life and, and I went into acting because that was a natural way to, to, um, get into the industry. But now this is what I'm doing is really his legacy. So, it's unbelievable to uh, do a scene with somebody who looks exactly like your father from the 70s. And, and your father died in 1994, I think? That's right. So, like, you've really, like, revived him for the show. Yeah. Um, and he, did, he wrote a lot of episodic TV. I'm wondering what his attitude was for the shows that he wrote for. I mean, because IMDb isn't always accurate. But there were a yeah. lot of shows where it says he did like one episode. I don't know if that's true or if that's Oh, a yeah, he did. Yeah, he wrote one episode of The Love Boat or maybe two. He wrote an episode of The Jeffersons. He wrote an, an episode of Chico and the Man. You know, he was a he was a gun for hire writer, uh, producer. And um, you go where the work takes you. And, and, and um, he was, uh, you know, he he and his partner, Phil Margot, wrote the the illustrious TV movie Venus Goddess of Love starring Vanna White um, <laughs> and me. I think that was <laughs> 80 what I don't even know 88 mm -hmm. or something it made like the top 10 worst oh, TV movie list of 88 or something like that and he was so excited he was like we're part of the conversation yes <laughs> we're top 10 top 10 anything is good <laughs> Was it discouraging for you to see him work so hard 
and just do episodes of like some good shows and some bad shows. It wasn't discouraging for me. I, I, it was work. I was, I was seeing somebody working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, I, and before that, he, he was writing uh, comic books and he was producing a, a daytime talk show. And my mother was working as well. My mother was working to support us while my dad was looking for uh, income jobs. So, my mother was a travel agent and she was working for a composer and she was working for a publisher. And so she was a realtor and, and it, uh, I, I have been modeled to working parents my whole life. So, um, you know, this little kind of, um, scattershot career that I've built comes from all of these little things that I would see my parents do. And i I've been working my whole life, not just as an actor, but I uh, doing other odd jobs. When I was, um, I was on Facts of Life for one season, and then I, they got rid of me, and I was in a flower store. And my agent at the time, he walked in, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "I should ask the same thing about you. You were working. Why in am the I working store? in a flower yeah. store?" Uh-huh. But I like work, <laughs> you know, that was my thing. I mean, I worked at Alice Underground in New York. Uh, I, I I liked working in retail. Uh, I, I, anything to keep my income, you know, going. And, and now, of course, uh, I get the ultimate gift, which is doing something that I love. You've told the story to interviewers about how when you were in your teens, and you were working, I think, on a sitcom, maybe a movie. Um, there was a scene where you were um, wearing a towel. And the, yeah. And the director said, oh, you know, it would be really hilarious if you dropped the towel. But I don't think you've said, like, what did you do? <laughs> did you do what the director asked you or did you refuse? You know, I, I was about 15 years old and I was wearing a towel so we're supposed to be post-swim because we've broken into somebody's house. And um, and he said that to me. And f- by some, I don't know, grace of some inner strength, I said, oh, no, I don't feel comfortable doing that. What was it like being a teenager? You were, what, 15? I was 15. So you're 15, and you're telling the director who's supposed to be telling you what to do, and that's his job. And you're telling yeah, he, him no. Yeah, he wanted to see my butt. He wanted me to drop my towel. Mm-hmm. He so, said, we'd only see your butt. And I just was so uncomfortable. Has the Me Too movement led you to rethink some some of the things you experienced in your past and kind of see them in a, in a different light? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um... Uh, when when all of it was going down, I was haunted by, you know, memories. I was kind of like flipping through the Rolodex of my experiences and and um, looking at them and going, huh, that's really, that's just not okay. Or, you know, um, you know, my, I mean, I have three daughters, you know, and I want them to um be protected, and I also want them to uh, speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves because, you know, for me in particular, I've gotten hurt, you know, by being, you know, forced into doing 
um, something physical, but it's not a stunt, quote unquote. You mean physically hurt, not emotionally hurt. Exactly. And uh, I remember uh, meeting uh, an old, my old friend Steve Anton, who was in the movie The Goonies. And one day we were in a store and we were just comparing scars where we got hurt at work. And so when I would um, be on jobs and I'd meet young people, uh, I would say, don't ever, ever uh, do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe. You just walk away if anybody tries to pressure you. But then you risk losing the job, right? Yeah, that's that's the thing. And, you know, it's why I have my dad say, the, the dad character in my show say, you know, don't be a whistleblower. You know, and I, and I do the opposite because people are still afraid to speak up, you know, and there's a how, lot of... How come you're not? Well, I don't know. It used to get me in trouble and now it got me a show. <laughs> <laughs> Your character on the show, again, a single mother of three, and um, in your series, the middle daughter almost bullies her mother, your character. Um, And she's so, like, the children, the three children are, like, so not curious about their mother's life. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's amazing that you said that. But they're not. They're really not. You know, like, you could be going through the most, like, extraordinary or excruciating thing, and it's like, they don't even want to know about it. Uh, and you could go out of your way to do, like, something great for, say, the middle daughter and get her t- tickets to something she's been dying to, to see. And, yeah. And t- t- she'll just be rude to you about it. Or, like, so um, is that something that you've experienced? And how do you, how do you explain that? Because I know, I know a lot of parents feel that way. It's it's just I'm so glad you brought it up because it's just a very, uh, you know, I I describe it as being alone within the chaos. So they're all talking about their situations and everything. And I'm I'm sitting there going, OK, well, I had, you know, this kind of really amazing thing happened today or um, I feel bad about this or I just went on a trip. I want to tell you guys about it. They really don't want to know. So it's like that thing when people say, when if if a kid says to you, how was your day? It's shocking. You're stunned. Oh, my God. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, my day? Wait. Whew, be still my heart. Let me take a seat. I mean, it's just they are extremely self-absorbed. That's the way they are. They're... They're, you know, molding and changing and, and they're they're losing their amniotic sacs daily and becoming going in the direction of each other. And, you know, I remember when my kids were younger, something, you know, uh, one of my kids said something like, oh, you, you, you know, you don't know who David Bowie is, mom. And I was like, I will kill you because I invented David. You don't tell me who David Bowie is. I told you and it's you you there's this feeling of obsolescence when you have children who are you know gathering strength and momentum and you're like hmm well you guys 
pretty much don't need me anymore. You know, you're 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 ready to go. It's 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 a crazy kind of feeling. It's it's like, you know, you can be lonely and be living in a family. You know, um, I think it's particularly um, a a single parent uh, phenomenon. So when we started the interview, we played a clip from Better Things in which her character is telling her doctor that she needs something to help her sleep because one daughter's um, going through puberty, another is going to college, and she has, and your character has to play tuition, and, and your character is going through menopause, and it's just like too much, and you can't sleep. So you yourself have been through a lot of that. Add on that you also went through the trauma of everything that happened with Louie. Are you getting any sleep? I do get sleep. I sleep I sleep pretty good, I got to tell you. I do the thing that I said in the scene with Dr. Babu. I don't sleep anymore. I pass out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us. I love talking with you. Thank you so much, Terry, for having me. It was awesome to talk to you. Pamela Adlon speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. Her TV series Better Things presented its finale last month after a five-year run on FX. All episodes can now be seen on the streaming service Hulu. Coming up, I review Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the new Paramount Plus series that takes the Star Trek narrative back to its original origins. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David Cooley. This week, Paramount Plus unveiled a new science fiction series. But it's also, in a way, a series that's very, very old. It's called Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And basically, it brings to fruition a TV series that NBC first proposed and made an unsuccessful pilot episode of in 1965. The Star Trek universe, like the Star Wars universe that followed it a decade later, obeys the laws of physics of our own universe. It's constantly expanding. And like Star Wars, the original adventures of Star Trek ended up in the middle of the canon, with other stories added that were either sequels or prequels. Star Trek, as it was first broadcast, began on NBC in 1966 and ran for three years, never cracking the top 20, but making an ever-widening pop culture footprint. William Shatner starred as James T. Kirk, captain of the Starship Enterprise, and Leonard Nimoy played his half-human, half-Vulcan sidekick, Mr. Spock. Eventually, other Star Trek TV series and movies followed. On TV alone, counting only the live-action, non-animated Star Trek shows, there have been four sequels, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and a current Paramount Plus offering, Picard. As for the prequels, which cover the territory before Kirk and Spock teamed up, there's been the series called Enterprise, showing that starship's maiden voyages, and Star Trek Discovery, another current Paramount Plus show. And now we have Strange New Worlds, a new Star Trek narrative that pulls characters and plot points not just from Discovery, but also from the very origins of the Star Trek series itself. And here's the surprising, exciting part. I've seen five episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and they're really, really fun. This is the most enjoyable Star Trek show since the original. It's a genuine throwback in more ways than one. 
The captain in Strange New Worlds is Christopher Pike, played by Anson Mount, who played the same character throughout season two of Discovery, and now gets to deliver this new show's opening narration, a major nod to the original Star Trek. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. The nostalgia doesn't end there. The creators of this new series are all about connecting all the Star Trek dots. Pike is called back from self-imposed retirement to take charge of the USS Enterprise once again, and his crew members include a new recruit named Uhura and a returning Starfleet science officer named Spock. This younger version of Spock is played by Ethan Peck, who nailed the role on Discovery and nails it again here, reuniting with Pike as the captain beams up to the bridge of the Enterprise. How are you, Mr. Spock? Systems are all nominal, but as you know, no simulations were run. Thank you, Chief Connell. The main AI has been upgraded. Personal rotation was in process. A few officers will have to build it after the mission. That includes the chief engineer and Lieutenant Kirk, whom I know you requested. Seems like a million years ago. Three months, ten days, four hours, five minutes, actually. I asked how you were, Spock. I am well, Captain. Although I confess, each time I return to space, the weight I carry over the loss of my sister feels heavier. Sorry, I miss her too. The sister they're referring to is the central character of Discovery, who, like that series, has time-jumped 900 years into the future. So that makes Discovery no longer a prequel, but a sequel. And that's getting way too deep into the sci-fi weeds. All you need to know is that Star Trek Strange New Worlds is a true prequel, but a modern one, both retro and shiny, old-fashioned and sleek. Its episodes are fairly self-contained. Its characters are playful and clever. And to those who know the original Star Trek series, there's that extra jolt of revisiting familiar characters. There are major upgrades, for example, of Nurse Chapel and T'Pring, both of whom are better written and played by better actors than in the old series. Even Number One is here, who was a character in the never-broadcast Star Trek pilot from 1965. The one made before Shatner starred as Captain Kirk, but instead featured actor Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike. It also had Leonard Nimoy as a more robotic Spock, and here's how that unsold pilot began, with him issuing an order. Consider it the Big Bang of the entire Star Trek universe. Check the circuit. All operating, sir. Can't be the screen, then. Definitely something out there, Captain. Headed this way. And now, Headed This Way is a new series that picks up the original Star Trek story and that already is set to introduce the Kirk character in Season 2. Just as the original Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry, it manages to comment on today's society and problems while presenting adventures that are both imaginative and, on occasion, inspiring. More than 55 years later, it's still a winning formula.
Star Trek Strange New Worlds premiered yesterday on Paramount+. New episodes will be streamed weekly. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews a new film about an illegal abortion in France in 1963 that seems eerily topical. This is Fresh Air. Arriving the same week as the news that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade next month, the French movie Happening tells the story of a young woman trying to get an illegal abortion. Our film critic, Justin Chang, says that while the story takes place in early 1960s France, it could scarcely feel more of the moment. The movie won the top prize at last year's Venice International Film Festival and opens in theaters this week. Here is his review. It would be hard to overstate the timeliness of the new abortion-themed drama happening. Then again, this harrowing movie, directed with great tension and intimacy by the French filmmaker Audrey Dewan, would feel timely and urgent under any circumstances. Based on a memoir by Annie Ernaux, it unfolds over several weeks in the life of Anne, a 23-year-old literature student in the French town of Angoulême who discovers she's pregnant after a brief fling. It's 1963, and most working-class women in Anne's position would be forced to drop out of school, give up their careers, and or get married. But Anne doesn't want to do any of those things. She wants to continue her studies, and so she decides to seek out an abortion even though the procedure is illegal. Anne is played by the superb French-Romanian actor Anna Maria Vartolome, whose piercing blue eyes register her character's mounting desperation— but behind that terror, she also shows us Anne's quiet determination. I'll manage, Anne tends to say, whenever she encounters a setback, which is often. The father in question doesn't care what she does about the pregnancy, so long as it doesn't involve him. Anne sees two male doctors. The first is sympathetic to her situation, but unable to help. The second prescribes her shots that he says will start her period. She later finds out he lied and the drugs have actually strengthened the embryo. Anne turns to some of her school friends for help, but they give her the cold shoulder. A male classmate makes a pass at her, figuring that, since she's already pregnant, she might as well throw caution to the wind. Happening is especially perceptive in portraying the social stigma of being a sexually active woman in the early 60s. Anne's friends think and talk about sex constantly, while remaining extremely judgmental of anyone who actually has sex. In one uncomfortable scene, Anne is harassed in the dorm showers by a classmate who accuses her of being a loose woman and spreading sexually transmitted diseases. Many of these details come directly from Ernaud's memoir, and Dewan and her co-writer, Marcia Romano, bring us deep inside Anne's experience. We are with her at every step as her body begins to change, and her academics and relationships begin to suffer. The movie becomes a clock-ticking thriller, with regular on-screen reminders of how many weeks she is into her pregnancy. The camera follows Anne in long, uninterrupted tracking shots that create a remarkable level of tension. That tension kicks into overdrive when Anne takes matters into her own hands, first by attempting the abortion herself, and then by turning to the black market. These scenes are not for the faint of heart, but as graphic as they are, they never feel exploitative. Happening joins a strong field of abortion-themed movies, including the 2007 drama Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, and the more recent Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. 
In each of these movies, we see a young woman struggling to deal with an impossible situation, whether in communist Romania or present-day Manhattan. Happening itself sometimes feels ambiguous in terms of its setting. You can tell the era from the actor's clothes and the payphones, but Dewan doesn't overdo the 60s trappings. It's as if she's saying this recreation of the past might very well be a window into the future. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film Happening, opening in theaters today. On Monday's show, actress Rosie Perez. She's currently co-starring in the HBO Max series The Flight Attendant. She was discovered at the age of 19, dancing at a nightclub, and became a dancer on Soul Train. Spike Lee chose her for the role of his girlfriend in his film Do the Right Thing after getting in an argument with her at a club. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salant, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley.